0: Written by W.O.E. Osterley, And published in 1923 This story looks at the evolution of dance And its importance to the development of cultures And civilization overall My name is Teddy And I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest Sleep is so important And my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. To all Spotify listeners, thank you for continuing to respond to the Q&A. I appreciate hearing your thoughts on the recent episode that you listened to. As always, thank you to all of the existing patrons that are able to support me on Patreon. My goal is to keep this podcast free to allow access for everyone, and it's the support from listeners via Patreon and Spotify that allows me to keep bringing out episodes for those who need them. If you would like to become a patron or sponsor, please visit boytosleep.com. Whether it's $1 or $5, your monthly contribution really helps and allows me to bring out more episodes for those who need them. Another fantastic and easy way to help is simply to leave a review in your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. I love hearing from listeners, so if you would like, please feel free to say hello at boytosleep.com. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The Sacred Dance A Study In Comparative Folklore by W. O. E. Osterley. Preface The following study is an attempt to estimate the part played by the sacred dance among the peoples of antiquity as well as among the uncultured races in modern times to account for its origin to note the occasions on which it was performed, and to indicate the purposes of its performance. The subject is more complicated than would appear at first sight, for while the fact of its universal prevalence among all races at one time or another, of their cultural development shows how essential a right it was, Its origin is obviously veiled in obscurity, seeing that it developed in prehistoric times, so that in seeking to throw light on the question of its origin, one has to try to get back at the mind of the savage and envisage things from his point of view but that mind represents a complex of such crass and illogical elements that one may easily be led astray. The purpose of the sacred dance, again, presents us with another set of problems, for while in some cases this is clear enough, in others there are alternatives which suggest themselves and further, it is probable that a variety of motives not infrequently prompted its performance. To disentangle these is not always easy. On the other hand, the interest of the subject from the human point of view is great, for as an indispensable right at all the crises of life, It was evidently a means of emotional outlet. From the psychological standpoint, therefore, its prevalence is not without importance. Indeed, it will probably be thought that from the psychological side, the subject is inadequately treated in the following pages. And this is true. Though it does receive some attention, but in extenuation, it must be said that the writer's main object has been merely to give some account of the sacred dance as a widespread rite, and he feels that its treatment from the psychological aspect would best be left to one who is an expert in psychology that the Old Testament figures somewhat prominently in the following pages is partly due to the fact that the writer has made a special study of this body of literature, and it seemed wise to start from that with which he was most conversant. But there is the further reason, as is pointed out in the introductory chapter, that the Old Testament offers in most cases an exceedingly convenient starting point from which to study the various types of sacred dance. The writer desires to express his thanks to Dr. Jevons, Dr. Lucan Williams and Dr. S. A. Cook for a number of helpful suggestions to Miss Bevan for reading through the proofs and his warm appreciation of the kindness and courtesy of the Secretary of the University Press. The minute care taken in pointing out oversights in the correction of proofs as well as other slips is most gratefully acknowledged. Finally, The writer would like to take this opportunity of thanking the curator of the Department of Greek and Roman Antiquities in the British Museum for his ready help in arranging for the photographing of the Greek vase, representing a menor dancing in honour of Dionysus, which is reproduced on the cover of this book. Chapter 1 Our study is concerned with the sacred dance, that this epithet applied to the dance at any rate during the earlier phases of its history, and as still practised among many uncultured and even some semi-cultured peoples today, is more than justified. The following pages will, it is hoped, show. Its extreme importance in the eyes of early men who regarded it as indispensable at all the crises of life, initiation, puberty, marriage, burial, who used it as one of the essentials in worship, who saw it as a means of perpetuating whatever supernatural powers he believed in, a means of communion with the deity, a means of obtaining good crops, fruitful marriages, and of communicating with the departed. To mention only its more important uses shows that it is a subject worth investigating, though the domain it occupies is but a modest one. In the great sphere of the history of religion, Probably one of the most instructive first-hand pieces of information which we have on the subject is contained in the answers given to Chalmers in reply to questions, which he addressed to some natives of New Guinea. He asked, what does the dance signify? and he got two replies from the natives of the two most important districts of this big island, respectively. The first ran thus. When they dance, all the spirits rejoice, as do the people. When dancing, all food grows well, but when not dancing, food grows badly. No drums are beaten uselessly, When anyone dies, drums are beaten to comfort friends. The second was this. Drum beating and dancing are a sign of rejoicing and thanksgiving, in order that by so doing there may be a large harvest. If the dancing is not giving, there will be an end to the good growth. But if it is continued all will go well. People come in from other villages and will dance all night. There will be several feasts during the time and each leader of the dance will pray and thank the spirits for the good harvest. Among other questions, he also asked, is there any useless dancing? And the two replies were, no, The drum is never beaten uselessly, and dances are never merely useless. The study of the subject brings out without a shadow of doubt that these answers illustrate that were, and still are to a great extent, the beliefs held in regard to the sacred dance by numbers of people in an undeveloped stage of culture. It is a good illustration of what, within a circumscribed area, holds good of the wider study of religions in general, that, as Farnell has so well put it, all through the present societies of savage men, there prevails an extraordinary uniformity. In spite of much local variation in ritual and mythology, A uniformity so striking as to suggest belief in an ultimately identical tradition, or perhaps more reasonably, the psychological theory that human brain cell in different races at the same stage of development, responds with the same religious speech, or the same religious act to the same stimuli supplied by its environment. A survey over the whole field produces the conviction that the stimuli which in its beginnings induced the sacred dance appear to have been what we should now describe as the two prime spiritual and material needs respectively of man, the response to his God and the obtaining of food. To early savage men, it was not, of course, a god as we understand the word, nor yet even as it would have been understood the millenniums among uncivilized men in remote ages. We merely use the word as a convenient term for expressing a supernatural power, or powers at first vague, impersonal mana, or something of that kind. At any rate, some power beyond the ken of man, of whose existence he had no doubt whatsoever, and to which he was impelled to respond to the best of his very feeble powers. Why he should have chosen this form of response is a difficult, perhaps an impossible question to answer though we shall make the attempt to do so. But that he did not choose this form, all the available evidence goes to show. That the sacred dance should have been believed to be the means of obtaining food is less difficult to understand when one remembers the universal belief in the efficacy of imitative magic among uncivilized men. The natives of New Guinea dance as a means of obtaining a good harvest, but there is evidence for the presumption that early man did the same thing for obtaining food long before harvests existed. As a means of response to supernatural powers, the dance was obviously a sacred act, but the epithet may also be applied though perhaps in a modified way, to the dance as a means of obtaining food, for the belief in the existence of supernatural powers once attained, the conviction of their intrusion into all the affairs of life would naturally follow as indeed we know to have been the case but this implies that Savage Man believed that these supernatural powers were, in some sense, the givers of food, and this is hardly compatible with the idea that the dance as an act of imitative magic was the means of procuring food, an idea which is abundantly proved by the evidence to exist. If an act of imitative magic, such as the dance, is ipso facto the means of bringing out what it imitates, how can it be said that supernatural powers have anything to do with the matter? And how can the dance, in this case, be called sacred? It is a question, however whether there was not a subconscious intention of setting in motion the machinery, which brought about the thing imitated every time as an act of imitative magic was performed. By the machinery, we mean the active intervention of supernatural powers in an undefined, mysterious way. In this case the dance as a means of obtaining food would likewise be strictly speaking a sacred act. However this may be, there is a large consensus of opinion that the dance in its origin was sacred and that every other subsequent form of dance was ultimately derived from this. It is true to say that the ritual or worship dance is the source of all others. As soon as one attempts to define what dancing in its essence is, one realises the difficulty of doing so. It can be defined in such a number of ways, all of which contain elements of truth, so much depends upon the point of view taken in regard to it. The recording of a number of definitions would be wearisome. Voss alone gives dozens by different people. But one thing which these various definitions teach must be noted and insisted upon. They show that the term dancing connotes a great deal more than is attached to it nowadays. When, for example, de Cauzac rightly defines dancing as la art de gestes, it is obvious that these cannot be restricted to the feet or legs. A number of the Egyptian inscriptions make it clear that the arms played an important part in the dance as the legs. Representations of it on Greek pottery show that the motions of the head and even more of the whole body, are necessary parts in the movements of the dance. Among some savages, the sacred dance is performed while the legs are more or less still, but the arms and the body are constantly in motion. To make but one reference to the modern dancing, in some of the figures of the quadrille, the dancers simply advance and recede and at times they are stationary merely bowing yet this all belongs to the dance and comes under the category of dancing crawley truly says that dancing is an instinctive mode of muscular expression of feeling if then The feelings are restrained. The muscular expression may take the form of a staid procession, as seems to be characteristic of the Assyrian sacred dance. We must therefore include, under the many forms of the sacred dance, such as range from a formal procession, stately and measured, to those of the wild orgy in the Dionysiac ritual. As we shall see, the intention which prompts the dance will have a great deal to do with its external form. The wide connotation which must be accorded to the word dancing is illustrated by what the Bedouin Arabs understand by it. They are a race which, as is well known, has retained many beliefs, customs, and practices, which have been handed down from time immemorial. Therefore the evidence afforded by them is valuable. By dance, which they call rucks, they understand every rhythmic movement of hands or feet, whether remaining on the same spot or not. Of them... As of all other peoples, rhythm is as inseparable from the movements of the dance as it is from other bodily functions and therefore belongs to it without saying. But as the Arabs show, rhythmic movements can be performed while standing on one spot, emotions can be expressed by the rhythmic movements of the arms and of the body and of the head, while the legs may be more or less motionless. The human instinct of play, says Crawley, is closely connected with the human love of excitement. The dance satisfies both, and its rhythmical character also makes it suitable for the expression of the most solemn and controlled emotions. It is at once the servant of Apollo and Dionysus. The close, one may almost say the inseparable, connection between the dance and music is as marked in its sacred as it is its secular character. In the first instance, it is the rhythmic instinct which demands this so that among many savages the music which accompanies the dance is the mere clapping of hands, or the striking together of pieces of wood, or the beating of the tom-tom. The same is also found among some peoples more advanced on the path of culture, though they usually add the sound of other instruments, among which the flute figures prominently. Singing is, and always has been, another favourite accompaniment to the dance. The Bedouin Arabs accompany their dancers by the beating of cymbals or of hand drums, or by clapping of hands. Sometimes singing accompanies the dancing. This was also the case among the Israelites. In the following discussion on the sacred dance we have made the Old Testament our starting point. In spite of some drawbacks which will become very apparent, this course has its advantages. The Old Testament offers either explicitly or implicitly, as we hope to show evidence of the existence among the ancient Israelites of most of the typical sacred dances of antiquity. By typical, we do not mean dances in their outward form, but in the intention and object for which they were performed. In dealing with sacred dances, it is only by considering their intention and purpose that a classification of them can be attempted. The Old Testament gives within the compass of its pages certain points which afford convenient starting points for the consideration of these different types of the sacred dance. Then, in each case, we go on to further investigation of these among various other races From this we are often able to discern, with tolerable probability, the early underlying ideas which prompted the performance of the type of dance in question. For as may well be supposed, it is not from the Israelites that we can expect to discover, excepting in the one case of the ecstatic dance, the root motives of the different types of the sacred dance. The most promising sphere for the discernment of these is among the uncivilized races. Their naive and unsophisticated naturalness reveals things which a gradually developing civilization obscures. Hence the devoting of a good deal of attention to the sacred dance among savages in the following pages. Another advantage of using the Old Testament for our various starting points is that the Israelites were in that stage of culture in which a people still retains many more or less primitive rites and customs while pushing forward on the path of cultural development, so that among them we are in touch with the past and yet experiencing the upward trend that is taking place, Crawley truly says that it is in the middle stages of culture that dancing is seen at its highest development. That applies to the Israelites. It is like standing on an eminence and looking behind and before. That has its advantages. At the same time, we are not blind to the drawbacks involved, for in some important instances, the Old Testament is silent. We give reasons which we believe are sufficient to explain the silence. But when a particular type of the sacred dance is not mentioned in the Old Testament, it must not be supposed that it did not exist. Indirect evidence is forthcoming which makes it highly probable that the reverse is the case. For this reason, we shall often refer to post-biblical Jewish custom and practice such a thing as the sacred dance is not likely, from the very nature of things, to have been an innovation of later ages, so that its existence in post-biblical times may well be regarded as the continuance of traditional custom, and if so, its existence among the Israelites of the Old Testament times may be taken for granted. Still, we realize the precariousness of seeming, in some cases, to build upon an apparently non-existing foundation. But the risk must be taken, and as we hope to show, the evidence from subsequent times justifies the risk. A few words must be said about the sources from which information regarding the sacred dance is to be gained. There are a certain number of ancient inscriptions of various kinds upon which dancing is represented. On these, the dancing is not always of a religious character, but it is not difficult to discern when it is religious and when secular. For example, there is a very valuable fragment of an Egyptian fresco belonging to the 18th dynasty in the British Museum on which two nude women dancers are depicted. The dancing is accompanied by other women, some clapping their hands and others playing the flute. But another part of the fresco shows clearly enough that the scene represents a banquet dinner, during which professional dancing is being performed for the entertainment of the guests. Though it is secular dancing that we have here, the inscription is important from the present point of view, because the dancing which is so graphically depicted does not differ greatly from that shown on other Egyptian inscriptions. Very prolific, on the other hand, is the second source in the main, Greek. There are large numbers of vessels of different kinds, vases, bowls, cups, dishes, flasks, jugs, bottles, jars, pitches, etc., on which dancing is depicted. Many of these represent secular dancing. Some give dances of a quasi-religious kind, but most of them depict religious dances, sometimes of gods and goddesses, at others of worshippers dancing in their honour. A very favorite subject is the dancing of meneds. Belonging to this source are a variety of other kinds of vessels on which sacred dancing is depicted. Sometimes the vessel itself is in the form of a sacred dance. Excavations in Cyprus have yielded some interesting material, to which more detailed reference will be made below. Some coins have also been found which throw light on the subject. This source is, above all, valuable for showing us the kind of dancers in vogue among the ancient Greeks, and bears out the truth of the remark that the Greek dancers may be divided and subdivided. Our third source also offers abundance of material, Ancient literature This source includes Egyptian literature, the Old Testament and post-biblical Jewish literature, ancient Arabic literature, some of the ancient church writers, and above all, Greek and Latin classical authors, quotations from whom would alone fill a small volume. Lastly, There is modern literature. This must be divided into two classes. The first is a small and very unsatisfactory class. Treatises which deal specifically with dancing. We have found this class of literature unsatisfactory for two reasons. First because there is comparatively so little information of a tangible character to be gained from it, and secondly, because no references are given to authorities, even when cited. Nevertheless, it is only fair to be respective authors to say that they are mainly concerned with modern dancing. As Crawley says, there are no treatises written on any scientifically comprehensive lines. With one exception, moreover, we have found the articles on the subject in all the well-known English and German Bible dictionaries of extraordinarily little help. The exception is Hastings, E-R-E. Here articles by Crawley... Farnell and Blackman have been of real help, and the writer gratefully acknowledges his indebtedness to them. As to the other class of modern literature, it can only be described as limitless. We refer to the vast number of volumes dealing with uncultured races, to mention even a tith of those which have been used would be out of the question. References to a good many will be found in the following pages, but it is impossible for the present writer not to say how much he owes to the works of Sir J. G. Fraser. Without their stimulus, these pages would never have been written. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story, and I also hope that you're feeling a little drowsy. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. Until next time, good night.